I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 5 will be our text this Lord's Day. And if you've been with us as we've been walking through First uh, and Second Samuel together, you know in these recent chapters that essentially what we've seen is a clearing of the way for a king. Second uh, Samuel opens up with the news of Saul and Jonathan's deaths, and we see how the house of Saul has been diminished and made way for the house of David to grow, how God is blessing the house of David, and how little by little uh, all that's left of Saul's house is really cleared out of the way in order that David might become king. And so now uh, Ishbosheth, who was one of the remaining sons of Saul, he has died. He's been murdered. The only other person from the household of Saul that's been mentioned so far is Mephibosheth. And we're told that uh, he is crippled and lame and in and no position to lead an, an army against David or anyone else. And so the, the path has been cleared. The table's been set. Now, the time has now come for the Lord's anointed, David, to be king over all of Israel. And so we're going to look at this today in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 25. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read the word of God for us. We stand out of reverence because this is the holy word of God handed down to us throughout generations. And this is what God's holy word says. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem Afterward, or after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemoa, Chobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishu, 
Nepheg, Japhia, Elijah, Elijada, Eliphet. And when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Purism, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of the place is Baal Purism. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his man carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear. Come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. And then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. If you would pray with me. Father God, as we read about the history of your people, as we read about the throne of David being established, as we read about events that happened centuries ago, help us to understand how these things point us directly to the gospel of Jesus. Help us to see how we today need to respond to the gospel of Jesus. Help us to see this picture we have in front of us of your faithfulness. Not just in the past, not just your faithfulness today, but how your faithfulness will always endure. Help us to see these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to the towards the end of summer, some of you have already taken some road trips as families. Others of you might be preparing to do those things in the coming weeks. I was thinking the other day about how much family road trips have changed over the years, especially uh, since I was a child. You know, today we have all these advances in technology. So for many of you, if you travel with kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, you've probably got you know, all types of electronic devices, and they can watch movies, they can entertain themselves, they can pretty much just stare at a screen for hours on end and kind of pass the time. But uh, for those of you who remember what it was like just a few decades ago, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, we didn't have movies in the car or the van or the Suburban. We didn't have all these electronic devices, if we were lucky, what we had was a radio that needed to be tuned and you had to keep changing the station as you traveled to try to pick up something local. And as a child, this made for extremely boring trips. And so if you remember those days, then you probably remember the phrase, are we there yet? Over and over and over again, as bored children from the back seat would ask, how much further are we there yet? How much further are we there yet? I'm not sure how much that said today, but it certainly was not so long ago. As we come to 2 Samuel chapter 5, I think 
there's a scene kind of like that perhaps that's unfolded because now it's been quite some time since David set out on his trip, on his journey. When we go back to 1 Samuel 16, we don't know for certain, but most believe that David was in his teen years around that time, maybe around 15 years old. And we know from the text today that he's now in his late 30s, and so over two decades have passed since God gave him that word through Samuel that he would be the king over all of Israel. And if you've been with us, you've been with us through the twists and the turns and the detours and this long, hard road that David has been on. And I would imagine that along that road, there were many times when David inquired of the Lord, how much further? How much further, Lord? Those times when he had Saul cornered and had the opportunity to take Saul's life to defeat who was his mortal enemy and claim the throne then and yet knew that Saul was still the Lord's anointed. And he wasn't going to take Saul's life into his hand, but I'm sure he was inquiring of the Lord, Lord, how much further? How much longer? And then when Saul was killed in battle and Jonathan's killed in battle and the other two sons of Saul are killed in battle, perhaps then David, as he's lamenting and mourning, is thinking, okay, now's the time that the day has come, and yet and then we have Ishbosheth rising up to be king in the north. And again, David likely inquiring of the Lord, Lord, how much longer? And now we come to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we come now some 20 years later <laughs> to the destination that God had told David he would one day arrive at. Now he will indeed be anointed king over all of Israel. It's a great reminder to us that our God is a God who keeps his promises that our God is a God whose faithfulness endures. And that's what I want to consider as we walk through this passage together today. I'm beginning with that first point, point one. God's promises always, always come to fruition. That the day has finally come for David's public anointing as king over Israel. Now you remember way back in 1 Samuel 16 when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse and he inquires about each of his sons and he finds that there's still yet another son, the younger son, out in the fields uh, with the livestock. He, he calls for that son. He, he anoints him as king. That, that's a private ceremony in front of Jesse and in front of David's brothers. Now will come, two decades later, a much more public anointing. Now all the elders from all the tribes of Israel, they come to David. God's will is clear to all of them. David is to be the king over them, and so they enter into this covenant with him, and they publicly anoint him to be king. And then we're given a reminder of the timeline here in verses 4 and 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So David was 30 years old when he began to reign in the southern part of Israel. And now that would put him at about 37, 38 years old when he begins to reign over all of Israel. So when you consider that, when, when you consider that timeline, just imagine for a moment what all that entailed for David. All those days and weeks and months and years between the time that God had made the promise until the promise was fulfilled. And, and not just the waiting. 
not just the time, but all of the challenges that came along that. How Saul was constantly threatening David and trying to kill David, and how Abner would leave an army against David. Imagine how difficult it would have been at times for David to hold on to the promises of God. I would imagine he wrestled with doubt, like us. I would imagine that he wondered if God's promises would ever come true, like perhaps some of us have wondered as well. But then this day finally comes, and God's promise and deeds indeed comes true. And it's a wonderful reminder to us today. It's a needed reminder to us today that God's promises always come true. That God does not have some statistic in his favor that, well, you know, 70% of his promises come true or 85% of his promises come true. Or, you know, we, we should be encouraged because 99.5% of God's promises always come true. No, what we see in the Word of God and what we're reminded of here is that every single promise of God either has, is, or will one day come to fruition. One hundred percent god is perfect in his record and he always will be he is a god whose promises always come to fruition but know this as we see in david's life here his promises often don't come to fruition on our timeline god doesn't operate on on our calendar God does not exist to do our bidding. God doesn't do what we ask when we ask every single moment of every single day. No, God operates on His calendar. He keeps His promises on His calendar. We need to be reminded of that. There's a quote I've shared with you before. I'll share again from Pastor Tim Keller. He said it this way. You cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. And that's what we see unfolding in 2 Samuel 5. All this time has passed. All these years that David's experienced. But now the time has come. Now David is looking out over all of these tribes of Israel and over all these elders who come to anointing as king. Now he is looking out on the kingdom that God has promised. And he's reminded that God's promises always come to fruition. But there's another promise that comes to fruition. Not just that David would be king. There's a promise that comes to fruition that was made much earlier than 1 Samuel 16. It's one that we could easily overlook because it goes all the way back to Genesis 15. It's a promise that God made to Abraham. Now, most of us remember that God makes this promise to Abraham about his offspring and about the land and how God's going to bless them. But God's very specific in that promise as to what land he is going to give to the offspring of Abraham. And when you go back to 
Genesis 15, verse 20, you see that God promises that the descendants of Abraham will one day dwell in the land belonging to the Jebusites. And then you come to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Many, 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 many years later, and you see the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. Because David now, as king, is going to besiege the land of the Jebusites. In fact, this will be where he comes into the city of Jerusalem, which, of course, will be an extremely important city for David. It's an extremely important city throughout God's word moving forward. This is the city of Jerusalem. That This is the city of David. And God's people dwelling there, that, that starts here in 2 Samuel 5. The fulfillment of the promise that God made all the way back to Abraham. Now, in fulfilling this promise, that there's some problematic language here. <laughs> if you read ahead in this chapter, uh, as some of you did, because some have already asked me the question, then you probably came across this treatment of the blind and the lame and wondered, well, what's going on there? <laughs> I mean, here in the text, it says real clearly that David hates, his soul hates the blind and the lame, that the blind and the lame will never dwell in his house. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'll start by saying that the language here is very difficult. And there's not a consensus on exactly what David is saying here. But I'll give you my thoughts and the thoughts of many. And it comes down to the context of what's taking place here. And because the blind and the lame are brought up in the context of the Jebusites taunting David and his men. And essentially what they're saying of Jerusalem is they're saying this city is such a stronghold, this city is so well guarded that we can stick our blind and our lame out on the city walls and you still can't get in. We can put people who can't see and people who can't fight and you still can't get in. That, that's how prideful they are about the stronghold of their city. And that's how little they think of David and his army. And so they're taunting him with this expression. They're not literally going to put the blind and the lame out on their walls to fortify the city. That, that would make no sense strategically. But they are taunting David with this saying that the blind and the lame will protect us, that, that you cannot overtake this. And it's explained there in verse 6. What are they thinking? They're thinking David can't come in here. He can't come against us. And yet David will come in. And so David and his men, they, they come in through a water shaft into the city, and they break down those strongholds, and they defeat the Jebusites. So then we come to verse 8, this language here again about the blind and the lame. And what it appears at first glance to say is that David hates blind people and hates lame people, and that he never wants them in his house. Now, does that mean his physical house where he'll reign from? Does that mean the, the temple one day? Well, again, there's difficult language here, but, but why the blind and the lame? Is, is the scripture here teaching us that David never wants to have blind people and lame people at his table? And, and I think we can say clearly that that's not what the scripture's teaching. Because in just a couple of chapters, David's going to sit at the table and he's going to invite Mephibosheth to sit with him. And Mephibosheth, who we've already been told about, is the crippled son of Jonathan. 
And I think one of the reasons, perhaps, that we've already been told about Mephibosheth, kind of given that glance of Mephibosheth and his infirmity, might be so that we can better interpret chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is clearly not teaching us that David hates blind people and lame people and never wants them in his table because we're going to turn around in just a couple chapters and he's going to have someone who's lame at his table. So what then does this passage mean? Well, I think what we have here in the language is a bit of sarcasm. And I think what we have is David's sarcastic response to the taunting of the Jebusites. The Jebusites have said to David, you can't conquer us and we'll put the blind and the lame on the wall and you can't even make it past them. And David is essentially responding to them by saying this, yeah, I'm going to conquer you and you're all going to be as blind and lame to me. That's how powerful you are. When we come in and we wipe out your city, it will be as if every one of you, the strongest among you, was blind and was lame. You will be defenseless against the Lord's army. I think what he's done is he's taken this taunt and he's made it into a title and he's applied that to the Jebusites. And so what he's saying about the future is that the Jebusites are cursed. And that they're not going to come to his table. And they're not going to come to his house. That he's going to conquer them and defeat them. And there will be an ongoing consequence for them standing against the Lord, the Lord's anointed and the Lord's army. And so I believe that's what we see unfolding here. So the picture that we have of, God, uh, of David going in and, and conquering the Jebusites, the, the, the picture we have of David becoming king will... Again, it's a picture that God's promises always come true. Another quote that I want to share with you this morning came from one of the commentaries I was reading this week in my study where the author said this, Yahweh's promise to Abraham has proven true, going back to Genesis 15. If verses 1 through 5 teach us that Yahweh's promises are certain in spite of a tense opposition, then verses 6 through 10 teach us that his promises are certain in spite of chronological distance. In other words, it doesn't matter how long ago God made the promise, the promise will indeed come true. 800 years approximately from Abraham to David does not erode the reliability of Yahweh's word. And then hear this. His promises are not stamped with an expiration date and small print. All of which should make a difference in the way waiting Christians read their Bible and look to the future. Hence, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 28. Not because we are unshakable, but because Yahweh's promises are firm, so firm that time cannot dissolve them, nor enemies sabotage them. Yahweh's promises may be old or opposed, but they are never false. Friends, we need that reminder today. The promises of God may be old and they may be opposed, but they, were ne- they are never false. And what God has said will happen, either already has happened, is happening, or will one day happen. God's promises always come to fruition. And so the application for us then from 2 Samuel chapter 5 is this. 
hold on to the promises of God. But the difficulty that comes is this. Sometimes we are holding on to things that God has never promised. I would say a fair amount of my pastoral counseling over the years is made up of counseling people who are holding on to a promise that God never made. And who are wrestling with, who are, who are struggling with some event, something not, not happening the way they thought it was going to happen and, and holding on to it as if God had promised them and now God wasn't fulfilling His promise. And so what we need to do as believers is we need to be able to discern well, what is it that God has promised and what is it that we're holding on to that, that He's not promised us. Friends, God, God has not promised you or I perfect health. He has not promised us that we will be cancer-free or disease-free. He, he has not promised us that the people we love will be in perfect health. He, he has not promised us, parents, that our kids will become believers. He's not promised us that our kids who indicate that they are believers will always endure and stay committed in their faith. He has not promised us that everyone we pray for and cry out to God for, that they will be saved. He has not promised us that all of our wishes and desires and wants and even needs will come to fruition. There are many things God has not promised us, and we need to be able to discern what those things are. Least we come to God with disappointment, as if He hasn't upheld His end of the bargain. So what has God promised then? 2 Corinthians 4.8 God has promised that we may be afflicted in every way, but we will not be crushed. That we may be perplexed, but we will not be driven to despair. That we may be persecuted, but we will not be forsaken. That we may be struck down, but that we will not be destroyed. God has made that promise to us. Hebrews 13.5 God has promised that the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. That, that's a promise of God. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus promises that He'll always be with us even to the end of the age. That, that is a promise of God. Matthew 24, 13, Jesus promises that those who endure until the end will be saved. That, that's a promise of God. Ephesians 4, 30, we're promised that the Holy Spirit, who is the one who empowers us to endure as Christians until the end, also seals us and secures us until the day of redemption. That's a promise of God. Revelation 21. Jesus promises that us on the day of redemption, when all of his promises come true, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes and that death will be no more. And neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is, friends, a promise of God. And we are called to hold tightly and firmly to that promise and to hundreds of other promises that God has made us in His Word because His 
promises will always come to fruition. Point two, God's faithfulness will always endure. God's faithfulness always endures. And so we see here in this text that David becomes greater and greater. Why? Because the Lord is with him and God is faithful to him. And that's why David is blessed. And it's important that we recognize that. That David is not blessed because David is so faithful. Because David is not so faithful. We have seen up until this point how David has struggled in his faith. We see in this chapter how David struggles in his faith. We will see in the future how David will struggle in his faith. How do we see his struggle here? Well, verse 13. We're reminded again that David was not faithful to the Lord's command that goes all the way back to creation when God gives His covenant picture and command of marriage to be between one man and one woman in this covenant relationship for a lifetime. And we have seen David already violate this. We've seen how David has done what is culturally acceptable in his day. He has taken on multiple wives. He's had multiple children through these multiple wives. And it just seems there'll be no end to this. Again, it's culturally acceptable. It's even culturally expected as king that he would expand his rule this way. But it's not ordained or blessed by God. It's a violation. Of the word of God. And there's a picture of it again here for us in verse 13 and following. David takes more concubines and more wives from Jerusalem. And then they were given the names of more children that he has through these many wives. We need to remember this is a reminder of David's sin. This is a reminder of David's unfaithfulness to the Lord. And it's put here in the midst of a chapter that we look to be to be reminded of what that that God is faithful and God always keeps his promises it's as if God wants to make sure we understand that second Samuel chapter 5 is not to be taken as this great tribute to David and how great David was and how much David deserved to be king But it is to be taken as a reminder to us of the glory of God and the faithfulness of God and how God's faithfulness endures. And how God's blessing on David's life is not because David is so perfectly faithful. But God's blessing on David is because God is perfectly faithful. And we see that blessing. And we see in the remainder of the chapter how the Philistines try to defeat David. They come against him twice. David seeks the Lord's guidance, and God protects David and continues to grow David's house. Why? Not because David was so faithful. (laughs) I mean, just imagine the picture for a second. You've got David, perhaps, coming from the room where there's one wife and going across the hall to another And as he's walking between the rooms, he's thinking, uh, perhaps praying, Lord, shall I go against the Philistines? (laughs) He's immersed in sin and disobedience. He's a part of this cultural norm that's an offense to God. And at the same time, he's praying to God, well, God, what, what would your will for me be? You can see 
the hypocrisy here. You, you, you can see here that, that, that God is not looking at David going, Well, David, you've been so extremely faithful. How can I bless you today? Now, why is that important for us? Why do we need to recognize this? Why, why, do we, why are we kind of beating up on David here? I hope that as we look at this, it encourages you and me. Because God's not looking at me today or you today and noticing how perfectly faithful we are either. And God's not in heaven holding on to blessings saying, well, you know, if, if these guys at Bluefield Baptist Church, if they're just, if they're just perfect in their faith, then I'm going to pour out these blessings on them. But if they mess up just once, there's no way. That, that's kind of how we look at God, isn't it? That if we just take one misstep, if we just do one incorrect thing, if we go to bed at night and, oh, I forgot to read my Bible, and now God's going to curse me. We have this works-based mentality, which is not what the Scripture teaches us. Yes, absolutely, the Scripture calls us to obedience. And yes, absolutely, God blesses obedience. But the big picture here is that God's faithfulness is entirely based on God's faithfulness. And that you and I will always struggle on our best day to walk by faith and not by sight. We will always struggle in our faith. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He didn't wait for me and you to get our act together. He didn't wait till we shined ourselves up. He didn't wait till we conquered all these sins in our life. No, we can't conquer all the sins in our life. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Our faith is secure because of God's faithfulness, not our own. Are we called to obedience? Absolutely. Are we called to walk by faith? Absolutely. But on our best day, we're going to struggle. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of 2 Samuel chapter 5 is... We serve and we worship a God who secures us based on his faithfulness and not our own. And here we have David, the polygamist, is exhibit A. In his sin, God still blesses. And in his sin, God still uses him. Now again, that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is not a prescription for us to go out today and say, well, David was a great sinner and God blessed him, so I'm just going to go sin as much as I want and God's still going to bless me. No, that's not what the scripture teaches us that this is not a prescription for how we're to behave it's a description of what god did and i believe of what god does that even though we struggle god still blesses why because his faithfulness always endures and so as we'll see moving forward david will rule and reign not because of his obedience and because of his perfect faithfulness. No, he will rule and reign because God is faithful. And his rule and reign will be blessed, not because of his perfect obedience, but because God is faithful. And I hope that's encouragement to us. That, that we can have peace today. That we can rest today. Not because of our perfect faith, but because of God's perfect faithfulness. Because we struggle, and we fail, and we sin, and we fall short, and we mess up. 
but God does not struggle, and God does not fail, and God does not sin, and God, God does not fall short, and God never, ever messes up. Therefore, we can rest safe and secure in the enduring faithfulness of God. It's a faithfulness that's dependent not on us, but entirely on Him. And what is it He is faithful to do? He is faithful to keep His promises. He is faithful to secure our salvation. He is faithful to make all things new. And we are reminded of each of those things every time we come to the Lord's table together. We are reminded that God is a God who kept His promise. That in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned against God, and they are facing now the due consequence of their sin, even in the midst of giving that consequence, God makes a promise. And the promise He makes is that a Redeemer will come, and that Redeemer will crush the head of the serpent. It is a forecasting and a foretelling of what Jesus does on the cross. It is a promise made, and it is a promise kept. When Jesus, truly man and truly God, goes to the cross and dies for our sins. And he crushes the head of the enemy. A promise made and a promise kept. And we're reminded of that every time we come to this table together. That this table consists of two elements. A bread and a cup. One represents the blood of Christ. One represents the body of Christ. They are reminders to us of the promises God has made and the promises God has kept. They are a reminder to us of the promises that God has made and the promises that God will keep. Because not only is our salvation secure because of what Jesus has done, not what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, which is what this table represents. Our salvation is secure because of what Jesus is doing and what Jesus will do. We are secure. We, we rest secure because of the enduring faithfulness of God. And one day, that promise that we read about in Revelation 21, that all things will be made new. We will sit at a table with our Lord. That's a promise we're reminded of when we come to this table. And it's a promise that will indeed come true. And so today, as we come to the Lord's table together, I want us to consider the promises God has made. I want us to hold firmly to these promises. And I want us to trust in the enduring faithfulness of God. And so I want to invite our deacons, if they would, to come forward now as we prepare to share in the Lord's table together.